0: A public sculpture by the artist David Hammons, called Day's End, has been permanently installed in the Hudson River. The construction was a collaboration with the Whitney Museum, and the work now belongs to the city of New York. But if you ask David, he'll graciously tell you that actually the sculpture belongs to Gordon Matter clark Gordon Matter clark is the artist who built the original Days End on the same spot, Pier 52, on the edge of the Meatpacking District nearly half a century earlier.
1: You would have walked into this dark, empty, musty, funky, (laughs) smarmy place, site, that had, you knew, all the
0: potential in the world. Bond Magazine editor Betsy Sessler was with Gordon as he scouted the piers before starting work on the original Day's End.
1: I mean, here it was utterly abandoned on the shore of the Hudson in the West Village, which at the time was a huge gay scene, and gone, whoa. I mean, this is vast. And there's something very profound happening there because there's this darkness, but beams of light are coming through, you know, little crevices.
0: And Gordon, I think, was drawn to those beams of light. Gordon was an artist like David Hammonds who used the city as source material. In his best known work, he transformed buildings with a chainsaw that he used to cut into them. Once, he split an abandoned house in half, cracking open its domestic interior. And For Gordon, cutting into the building wasn't about destroying it, but rather recreating it and encouraging the public to experience them as sculpture. In the case of Days Inn, the work was on a grand scale.
2: Kind of like um, well, like a hangar space. Artist
0: and art historian Jonathan Weinberg
2: Imagine a Costco that was emptied of all the stuff, or a gigantic Home Depot. That would be what it's like.
3: The pier in those days was a, a meeting place for gay men. It was an enormous pier uh, with a lot of broken glass on the ground, and outside people were sunbathing. And Gordon went in to transform it, and he. Uh, Put up some signs saying "No Trespassing" and "Men at Work," and of course it was just him and maybe one or two other people he convinced to help him.
0: Jean Crawford, wife of the late Gordon Meta Clark.
3: He went in with his chainsaws and his block and tackle, and proceeded to to cut it up. And what was most alarming to New York State authorities was that he'd actually cut the pier away from the mainland. So it was there sort of floating in the water.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Artists Among Us, a podcast from the Whitney Museum of American Art that reimagines American art and history. In this season, we take David Hammond's sculpture Day's End as a starting point. From there, We look into the many histories, mostly now invisible, that have shaped this site on the edge of lower Manhattan. In episode one, we learned David Hammonds used the city to create his work. In the second episode, we dive deeper into the original day's end.
3: Gordon liked to say that the layers of how we live in a room are like layers of skin. And he considered himself a kind of urban archeologist cutting through these layers to see uh, how people had lived before.
0: Today, we're traveling backwards in time. We'll start in 1970s New York City and go back to when the Lenape were the primary inhabitants of the island, which was then called Manhattan. Historian Andrew Berman.
4: To me, that's still what I always think of when I think of the neighborhood, even as, as cleaned up and glamorized and um, uh, different as it's become today.
0: This neighborhood is a stretch of land along the far west side of lower Manhattan, below 14th Street. Historically, it's always been a place of commerce, but when Gordon Matter Clark created Day's End, the neighborhood had been allowed to fall into a state of disrepair. Curator Tom Finklepearl,
5: And I hear people reminiscing about that, or, or especially young people, thinking about how great it must have been. And you have to remember that a lot of people were getting murdered. It, there were no jobs. But I think, you know, these kind of interventions, like what Mata Clark did, was see the beauty, or the potential beauty, in this wrecked urban space and then intervene in a way that allowed you to see it. Mata Clark wasn't the only artist working on the piers.
0: Here's Adam Weinberg, director of the Whitney Museum. There was
5: actually an exhibition of art made on Pier 18.
2: Pier 18 was really the um, idea of Willoughby Sharp who invited 27 male artists um, to create works of art on pier 18 which is down by the world trade center and what we call battery park city now sharp's idea was to ask these various artists to come up with different conceptual pieces uh, and Vito Acconci's piece for Pier 18 is really amazing in which he got the, um, his friend and artist Lee Jaffe to blindfold him and then um, uh, while he's sort of wandering on the piers, it was Lee Jaffe's job to make sure that Vito didn't fall into the water. And when this is photographed, it really looks like something from a film noir, as if as if Jaffe is not trying to keep Akanchi from falling into the water, but is, is leading him to the water or going to kill him because of the blindfold. And of course, the, the one of the big associations of the waterfront is the sort of as a site of kind of mafia corruption. And teamster corruption.
5: The artists just kept taking over the piers. Long after, you know, Martha Clark's Day's End was complete. You know, even in the early 80s, a group of East Village artists were transforming Pier 34 into a giant exhibition space.
2: Pier 34 is at the end of Canal Street, and it was, in quotes, discovered by um, David Vernarovich. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's way down from the so-called sex peers. And basically what happens is this group of artists um, uh, 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 squad in this space. Rovich, Peter Hujar, Mike Bidlow, they take it over and they start painting on the walls and, and creating all kinds of sculpture and, and installations in this, uh, in this amazing space. At a certain point, um, it was announced that there would be an opening and all these people are invited to come see the work and the police show up and shut it down. I mean, it's quite the same thing with Gordon Matta clark I, I think you have to put your head into the mentality too that artists and young people had in the 70s, which was that the city and the government and the police were, were the sort of bad guys, right? And that doing this kind of thing, taking over these spaces was an act of freedom and liberation.
0: Gordon saw an underlying beauty in these abandoned buildings that city planners and politicians simply ignored.
6: He grew up in the era of urban renewal projects, large-scale urban renewal projects, in which parts of the city that were considered problems or irrelevant and unimportant were essentially raised to make way for fortress-like corporate spaces and quite commonly freeways, bridges, tunnels, and other forms of passage to secure safe uh, travel in and out of the city for suburban commuters.
0: That's NYU professor of media studies, Laura Harris.
6: That's part of the backdrop for monte Clark's practice, I think, is not wanting to participate in this kind of development, in this, in this use of, of architecture, um, which depended in some ways on transforming in the city in this kind of, through these brutal renewal projects. So instead he attempted to intervene in some ways by opening up what he considered abandoned structures to new possibilities.
0: The Meatpacking District felt very different from the quainter New York neighborhood nearby, the West Village, and yet in many ways it represents what New York is all about a wide-ranging mix of people living and working side by side.
4: In addition to the, the meatpacking businesses, which were still very much there, there was also this increase in concentration of these uh, bars and clubs, both sex clubs and dance clubs.
0: And it's where Florent Morellet ran his in-crowd restaurant from 1985 to 2008. It was a favorite spot for artists, celebrities, and clientele of the neighborhood's many gay bars.
7: I went to the Mineshaft, the Anvil, that were really great, and coming out at two, three, four o'clock in the morning was unlike any other club you came out at that time because you came out of other clubs, the city was dead, but you came out of those clubs in the Midmarket, market. And you had a neighborhood that was pack with traffic jam and trucks and people going around yelling at each other like move the uh, taxis and uh,
8: meatpackers the meat market still persisted quite long really until the last few decades really
0: architect Catherine Sevit
8: so that brings you to the kind of stench of, you know, rotting meat or the smell of the uh, carcasses or the blood from the animals, which are really being carved up inside of these buildings and then trucked around on, you know, not things unlike the garment racks that move around in the fashion district, but actually these would be carcasses uh, rolling along wheeled carts with guys in white aprons, wielding them.
0: Visitor New York's like, why was it called the Meatpacking District? Artists. Like on, like because there would be bloody
4: carcasses <laughs> hung on the street, you know, outside of the meat packing shops that line the streets here. So, and there would literally be blood running
7: on the street. Well, in the early days, it's dark, yeah, especially uh, you know, the warmer the weather.
4: When I think of the meat packing district, I think of the smell in terms of what it used to smell like, in part because of all of those those meat packing plants.
7: Rotten blood. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, being close to the river, it's an area where you have a little bit of breeze.
8: But yeah, I mean, remember the you know, whole sides of beef were on those rails. There was still a kind of chaotic street life. Of course, the Belgian block that paved all of those streets in the meatpacking district had a particular rattle for both, you know, cars or those carts of meat. So there was very much a kind of loud street life that persisted.
0: When Gordon came to the meatpacking district, meatpackers had already began moving out, and the vibrant shipping industry of the early 20th century was long gone. Matter Clark spent a total of three months cutting into the building's floors and walls with chainsaws transforming the space. But by doing this, he also temporarily displaced the people who used the piers for sunbathing, socializing, and sex. We'll spend more time with them in our next episode. And while he was trespassing on their space, he was also legally trespassing. After he finished the work, a warrant went out for his arrest.
2: But one of the things that made it so dangerous is that he actually made cuts in the floor to reveal the water, and he made like the little bridge, like a little bridge, so you would see these big cuts both in the floor, as if, as if the light coming through this huge um, arc-like shape had sort of cut holes into the floor, like beams of light had cut holes into the floor.
6: The play of light and wind and rain and all the elements he's allowing in on the structure, the way that it penetrates one hole and exits another hole, the way that the light and shadows and the, the whole atmosphere of the space changes over the course of the day, you know, from beginning to day's end is is what he is interested in that moment.
2: And if you stayed there long enough, of course, you'd watch the sun setting, right? Which is the, to him, was the sort of ultimate narrative of the piece, that's why it's called Day's End, because you're kind of kind of watching the, the movement of the light through it. Jessamine Fiore is the curator, as well as the co-director of the Gordon Mata-Clark
9: estate. And he really talked and, and spoke and wrote about Day's End as a kind of public park that he wanted it to be experienced through all four seasons. He wanted to see how the light changed in the space for all four seasons. He wanted people to enter the space that was once dark and dangerous and foreboding and now had been opened up and was a celebration of light and water and just being in this place that is the island of Manhattan and for people to be able to access that and have that experience and look at their environment in a new way.
3: Gordon had more energy than all of us here in this room.
0: Jane Crawford was married to Gordon Matter Clark until his untimely death in 1978 at the age of 35 from pancreatic cancer.
3: It was very magnetic, a personality. He was always laughing and joking and very engaging with other people. Um, I used to say he'd go out in the morning to buy the newspaper on the corner and come back with two or three people he just picked up on the street. And, you know, they could be anywhere from homeless to students to, um, you know, a a nuclear physicist he came home with once. The pier was lovely inside because you could hear not only the lapping of the water and the uh, boats, the tugboats honking their horns and, and uh, little boats honking their horns. But there's also just this lovely murmur of the city at a distance, which um, I always found somehow very romantic. You'd hear sirens and, um, and cars honking, but always from a distance. So that was like the um, uh, subliminal uh,
1: soundtrack of the uh, pier, if, if you will. But the interior of course is what Gordon was drawn to and he wanted to bring light into it. Uh, And he never told me until the 11th hour what environment he had picked to go film or to to go do a piece or an intervention or an architectural intervention in. So this really was one morning we woke up and he said, grab your Super 8, we're gonna go and I've got this whole thing planned. Betsy Sessler filmed the making of Day Zen And there he was with the pulleys and the, (laughs) you know, and the saws and the, and I just filmed. I, I really just caught the action wherever I could, the light coming in.
9: I think when looking at what Gordon was doing with making these cuts in buildings, it's important to remember that it wasn't about destruction.
6: He wanted to transform the spaces. There's a level at which he's interested in imagining you know, what else might a building look like if you let light in in this way? What might it feel like if you let sound or or wind in in this way, but also what other, you know, how else, what other interactions might emerge if you reshaped buildings or opened them up in this way?
9: And he talked about how he felt that people, everyday people were too timid in their own spaces, that in fact, we have the ability to change our spaces, even if that change is by cutting holes in them.
2: He's one of those artists that, um, you know, he just touches something and he decides, oh, I'm going to I'm going to cut this out and then it's going to be a work of art. You know, he's I'm very drawn to, uh, I guess, the sort of notion of kind of the artist as an alchemist, which I think is a theme that uh, reoccurs in his in his work. To me, that's what artists do. They're transformative, right? They transform things. And they create something that is magical, you know, that truly, it takes, you know, truly opens up the world and it kind of creates a kind of moment of freedom.
0: The artist as alchemist is a useful way of thinking about both Matt clark and David Hammonds. But their artistic parallels don't simply stop there.
6: One might imagine Hammonds' piece as a kind of picking up of where Mata Clark left off. You know, what he did was highlight and bring to our attention a kind of practice that he is also inviting us all to take up in our own ways. A kind of creative inhabitation of space, a creative rearrangement of space, for example, a creative reworking of the city to open up the possibilities for how we might perceive, and how we might live.
9: I think that the spirit of both Gordon's work and the David Hammond's sculpture is for people to relook at their own urban space, urban existence, to connect with the history of generations that have come before in this place and its architecture and the just the spirit of creativity and art and possibility that is, to my mind, ingrained in this city, in its soil even.
0: The ground beneath Day's Inn and the Whitney Museum has a rich and storied history.
5: Well, the museum's on Gansevoort Street, and Day's Inn's just, you know, right at the end of Gansevoort Street on the peninsula. In fact, the name goes back to the um, early 19th century. It comes from Fort Gansevoort, which was built during the War of 1812 to defend against the British. In fact, it was never actually used, and the fort itself was named for a
4: Revolutionary War hero Peter Gansevoort. Many of the streets in Greenwich Village are named, in fact, for Revolutionary War heroes. All of those named streets that still survive south of Washington Square Park, like Sullivan and Thompson and McDougal, those were Revolutionary War heroes. Colonel Gansevoort was a slaveholder, as were many New Yorkers at the time. New York, uh, interestingly, while it was a center of abolitionist activity, it was also a center of a lot of slave owning and slave Mm -hmm. trading.
5: You know, some of the abolitionist activity, in fact, took place relatively close to the museum. There was an African free school in Greenwich Village and teachers, you know, worked really closely with the black children there to try to get them to think um, uh, positively about the notion of emancipation to prepare themselves for it. And there was also a community around the Zion Methodist Episcopal Church that was in the West Village, which included people like Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, And I think the church itself was also a stop on the Underground Railroad. Peter Gansevoort was also Herman Melville's grandfather. And after the Civil War, um, Melville worked on Gansvort Street as a customs inspector. He became a customs inspector because Moby Dick was an incredible financial failure, which most people don't realize. He was pretty much unemployed. I think he was working for $4 a day, and I think even adjusted, that wasn't so great. I remember reading that he hated his job and he said it was worse than driving geese, which I find particularly amusing because the name Gansvoort in Dutch means the lead goose. It's the goose that leads the, the V that cuts across the sky. And um, his office was on West Street, right where Gansvoort Street hit the, um, hit the river.
4: So, you know, as the 19th century went on, you had bigger and bigger piers on the west side. Um, The Industrial Revolution also led to landfill. So you had the the land being added to and built out with everything from, you know, sort of waste and garbage to dirt and um, soil. And uh, you certainly saw factories starting to um, crop up, especially along the waterfront, including in Greenwich Village. And along the waterfront, in addition to all of these very, very busy piers and the factories, you also had a lot of sailors' hotels, um, because you had a lot of folks who worked along the waterfront, and some of them were quite notorious, you know, had a sort of Barbary Coast kind of um, uh, flavor to them. Um, and then interestingly, there were some that were set up by these uh, sort of missionary charitable organizations to give sailors a, a wholesome, healthy place uh, for them to stay uh, during their time uh, in port.
8: The site on which the Whitney now sits used to be um, Gansport Market, it was an open air market where um, commerce, whether it was mostly vegetable produce, was brought by horse and cart. And it was an outdoor fruit market, essentially fruit and vegetable market. Um, and that's really like the end of the 19th century.
4: One of the reasons why it, it did develop as a market neighborhood was in part because it's proximity to the river, and there used to be these great big piers that were located there. Pier 54, actually, which no longer exists, uh, was the pier where the survivors of the Titanic were brought uh, when they were uh, rescued. It's also where the Lusitania left, uh, where it shipped out of New York on its fateful journey
8: later there's actually a new um enclosed structured market called the west washington market which grows up just across the street on the Gansfort pier uh, exactly where pier 52 is was located and is now um, the site of hammond's sculpture
4: these were large large piers that accommodated the biggest ships um, of their
8: day that enclosed market was quite uh, novel in many ways because they could actually start to sell produce that was meat-based or animal-based. So both dairy products as well as meat products could be sold there because of this advent of refrigeration. And it was because of this refrigeration that meat could be safely packaged for the market in these buildings.
4: The High line was sort of the this strange... Um, intervention in the kind of the, the, the dying days of commerce and industry, or at least of that traditional kind of commerce and industry along the west side. Catherine Sievitz.
8: Essentially the rail, the trains were running on grade initially, so at the street level. And there were even, I think it was called the Avenue of Death. It was pretty dangerous for pedestrians who were walking around the neighborhood because they were basically at risk of being run down by trains. There were even these guys like cowboys on horses who would try to control pedestrian and horse and wagon traffic from collisions with the trains. So they would basically kind of police people and keep them out of the way of the the trains when they were oncoming.
4: The funny thing was, was that they they did it, uh, I guess they couldn't quite see it coming, uh, but certainly at this time period, we were really beginning uh, a pretty dramatic shift away from this method of um, transporting goods. So by, the High Line was built in the 30s, the Second World War happened, and after the Second World War, there was a huge shift away from that kind of uh, transportation. And then when trucking became the more predominant way of goods, like the meats were uh, moved in and out, its proximity to the West Side Highway um, also uh, was an important part of how and why the meatpacking district uh, functioned there.
0: John Jobaghi is a third generation meatpacker and grew up in the neighborhood watching his father and grandfather do their business. When I first came down here, you
10: had a lot of Western European immigrants, and they were primarily guys from, from farms. You know, they weren't kids from cities. The, the, these were farm kids who came to America to make poor kids, like my grandfather, to make a better living for themselves. They weren't growing up in mansions, coming to New York to be meatpackers, to be butchers. You gotta remember, it went from 15th Street and 9th Avenue over to 10th Avenue, and it went from 15th Fourteenth Street was the main street. And then you had a few meat companies past Ganserbridge Street from ninth to the city. So you had them like four blocks north-south and two blocks east-west. And all the buildings and nothing was empty.
4: You know, one of the things that's so interesting about the neighborhood's history is how many of the of the really famous Bohemian haunts of the twentieth century were places that were run by Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, and it was in fact that sort of sense of this close-knit, intimate community that existed outside of the the sort of contemporary mainstream of American culture and society that really drew a lot of these artists and writers and painters to these places, both the, the neighborhoods and specifically these bars,
10: coffee houses, cafes, Every storefront, big and small, was full. And it was a community, and people loved it, and everybody knew each other, and all the bosses, it was almost like a club, and the bosses would get together. There was a restaurant called Frank's Restaurant on Washington Street and 14th Street, and the bosses would get together. A lot of them would like to have their little cliques. They would meet every day for breakfast together. And they loved talking about where's the pork market, where's this market, where's the beef, where's prices going, you know, and just socially and business-wise chat. And they loved
4: it, loved it. Well, certainly I would not say that the neighborhood was without conflicts or tensions. There's also just a, a wonderful history of kind of mixing and interaction that really shaped the character of the neighborhood tremendously.
0: This vibrancy and people's sound and exchange of some kind has always been part of the neighborhood.
8: I think the fascinating aspect of that site in which the Whitney is now planted, the downtown Whitney, is that it's always been historically a trading, a place of exchange, a trading post. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Lenape peoples. Sapokanikan is the name of the trading post, which was actually at that very point on the Hudson River shoreline on Manhattan Island.
11: It was called Sapokanakan, which in the Lenape language thought to mean tobacco field or, you know, a place where tobacco grows.
0: That's Alan Michelson, a New York City-based artist and a Turtle Clan Mohawk member of Six Nations of the
11: Grand River. And so I was fascinated by the fact that the name of that Lenape settlement had survived and that the Whitney landed on that site 400 years later. So 400 years ago, in the early days of the New Amsterdam Colony, that area was a beach and a small settlement. There was probably fishing and planting, maybe more than tobacco, and a place of trade. And that was trade that probably included trade not just among the immediate groups of Lenape and and the sort of sub-nations, but uh, groups like the Haudenosaunee, you know, my ancestors, who were upriver In the fall of 2019, Michelson had a solo exhibition at the Whitney
0: called Wolf Nation. His idea was to investigate the layered histories of the place and to reveal its indigenous history. His work reminds us that we stand on land that has a long and complicated history and one that challenges us, one that was not taught to us in school.
11: It's a significant site, a significant native site One of, you know, many that basically are covered with concrete and buildings, not just in Manhattan, but across the country. And I just wanted to use that opportunity of showing at the Whitney, you know, to bring that history to light.
0: George Stonefish is an elder of the Lenape Nation and a longtime New Yorker.
11: Most New Yorkers, if you ask them what uh, natives met the Dutch, They don't know. They don't know it was the Lenape. And all they'll tell you about it, but we know they sold the island of Manhattan for $24. And that's the limit of their education. We came from this area and we were chased ultimately and settled here and chased again and we settled and we were massacred at that one spot that we presently are at now. And that whole history of going down and so forth, people should know of.
0: Curtis Zuniga is a Lenape Indian.
2: Well, that's kind of the way Lenape Hoking was. It wasn't just one homogenous people. There were common language and life ways and religious ways, but they were still more of a collective than one homogenous group.
0: Eric Sanderson.
2: If we were here in the early 17th century, coming into New York Harbor, we would have seen a a long, thin, wooded island, which is the local people called Manahata. Maybe we'd have seen Lenape canoes, dugout canoes. They would make them out of these tulip trees, these very tall, very straight tulip trees. We, we think Sapokinecan, um, near where the Whitney is, is a place where they would cross the river to trade with the people over in Hoboken and, and back and forth, so. You might even have caught a glimpse of a trail that would have gone back into the forest and then down through Greenwich Village and then on to the, the the main sort of north-south trail was on the on the east side of Manhattan, somewhere, you know, somewhere around Murray Hill and so forth. So would have been really extraordinary.
8: So it goes from being this site of Lenape Exchange connecting to waterfront and terrestrial voyaging paths, let's say, or pathways, to this more commercialized produce market and then a meat market, but always about this place of exchange that's tied to both the river, to other transportation systems, such as rail and road or trail, all within this little nexus. So it's a fascinating site.
0: I'm pretty sure that neither Matter or, or Hammonds had these histories in the top of their minds when they conceived their versions of Day's End. But each work in its own way opens up a hole or an absence into the day-to-day inviting reflection on what stories and what histories that have passed from view, ignored, or been denied. Artist Glenn Ligon.
4: I think that sort of idea of the past being present is always in David's work, you know, partially because the materials he often uses have another life, you know, and so he's literally taking something that someone else has used or someone else has discarded and sort of thinking making new objects
0: with it. Writer, critic, and artist, Luc Sant.
10: And I believe that you can't really live in the present unless you have the past to look back upon. You know, it would be like deciding that you're uh, a writer or a student of literature, but are unwilling to acknowledge the literature of the past. So obviously, can't do that. You're standing on others' shoulders.
1: You know, I mean, it's that old Faulkner adage, you know, the past isn't dead, it's not even past yet.
10: And it's the same for things that are less specific, things that are more subjective about the past and about the way it affects you. And the things that you see on the street, stories that are handed down, we don't just exist in this one present moment, we're also existing in a spectrum of time.
12: been listening to Artists Among Us, a podcast from the Whitney Museum of American Art. Over the next three episodes, our exploration continues, looking more closely at the queer community that frequented the meatpacking district in the 70s.
7: On the weekends, it was full of men. You'd have guys just sitting there cruising. You'd have people bring some Chinese food and you would eat a drink a beer, smoke a little something, watch the sunset. It was a great place just to sit and watch the sunset and uh, people would come in with little towels and they would put the towels down and they would sunbathe on these rotting wooden piers at night people would just sit there and look at the stars or cruise one another um, you could sit on the pier all the way at the end be all alone and look back and you can see the city all lit up at night that was really nice
12: to learn more about the stories you heard here, visit whitney.org/podcast. You'll also find Artists Among Us wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, share, tweet, and if you're in New York City, across the street from the Whitney, listen and do some time traveling. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this podcast: Luke Sant, Catherine Sevett, Betsy Sussler, Laura Harris, Jane Crawford. Jessamine Fiore, Eric Sanderson, Jonathan Weinberg, Paul Gallet, Glenn Ligon, Alan Michelson, Andrew Berman, Tom Finkelpearl, Florent Morellet, Adam Weinberg, Curtis Zuniga, and George Stonefish. Thanks also to oral historians Liza Zapol, who interviewed John Jobaghi, and Sarah Sinclair, who interviewed Curtis and George. Special thanks to El Kachea, Sofia Ortega-Guerrero, Eliza Senna, Jackie Foster, and Helena Guzik. Original music for Artists Among Us and Day's End was created by Daniel Carter and his collaborators. This podcast was produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Katenjian, Katie McCutcheon, Jeremiah Moore, Mawena Tendar, and Philip Wood. It was produced in collaboration with the Whitney Museum of American Art, including Anne Byrd and Emma Quaitman.